you know, if how people introduce you is a, is an is, it says something about your identity, and quite often when I'm introduced here, you know, they they introduce me a title which I have to confess is not my favorite title, the lead pastor thing. Yes, I accept it, but it's not the it's not the one that gets me, you know. Um, if I had my way, you know, I would constantly not be introduced as lead pastor, but you know what I'll be introduced by? You guys know it now. Uh, Chief Storytelling Officer. That's my favorite because I love to tell stories. But I have to confess, can I, can I be open with you guys? I'm having a bit of a crisis. And it's about my title. I, I feel like there's a second one that is really more, it's becoming more and more important. Um, but, you know, it's really linked to something. You see, when pastors sometimes, when they, we meet and we talk, um, it's not the best thing to do, but you as parents, you know how you do. Parents that are here, you understand this thing. Parents like to boast about their children. Pastors like to boast about their congregation. It's just true. And so sometimes I'm with some pastor friends, and I wonder, you know, people are throwing stuff. What do you boast about? So... I try not to boast with how large our church is. You know, that will not get me anywhere. I try not to boast about, you know, the dress sense of the people in our church. Obviously, that will get me anywhere. No, now, seriously, let's be serious here. I try not to boast about how good looking the people are. So they're not, obviously, it's not. As in, you guys like didn't follow my example. That's what I mean in that. But there's one thing I boast about. I tell any of them anywhere. Yes, you have all of these things. You have all. Yes, you have buildings. You have everything. But there's one thing about my congregation. I know. This is the smartest congregation in all of Lagos. Smartest. And it's largely because of my other title, which is the GQM. The Grand Quizmaster. I have you know, my good friend Yemi is there. He's grander than me in most things, but not in this one. So GQM, I love the fact that this is an intellectually stimulated church, a church that will never fall my hand when I give a quiz. And so because of that, just to further prove and confirm, I've introduced a new quiz today. It's called, Who Said It? And I want to show them, because some of them are watching. I want to show them that you guys won't form my hand. Will you form my hand? No, okay. Now, if you are not here in the first... Uh, no, no, you can't form my hand. You don't have choice. You don't have choice. So, now, if you are here in the first service, please, obviously, you can't provide first service people, please. Okay? So, I'm going to give you four quotes. It's not mathematics. We did mind in Lagos recently. We did the board mass. People were... Some people got it. Some people didn't. But it was a, it was, it was a public holiday, so their brains were in. But now... We are working. Okay, so it's just about quotations. I will put a quotation up there, and I'll ask you, who said it? And then you will supply the answer. You know, the one's answer will now check with whether the answer is the right thing. Okay? Are we good? Yeah. All right, let's start this. Who said it? Let's... You are welcome to... You are welcome to... Who said it? Woo! All right, good, good. First one... First one, insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. Albert Einstein, is that true? Is that true? Wow. Okay, okay. Okay, okay. All right. Um, uh, if I have seen, second quote, if I have seen further than others, it is by standing upon the shoulder of giants. Who said it? 
<laughs> if I see further, many of you went to science, science class now. Science. If I see further, standing upon the shoulder of giants. Aha, let's see. Is there a greeting? Okay, okay. My people are not falling. I told you. All right. This one is a religious one. Preach the gospel at all times and when necessary, use words. Who said it? No, never. <laughs> eh, say, who said St. Francis? St. Francis of where? Of Assisi. St. Francis of Assisi. Wow. All right, this one. This one, I know it will be unanimous, right? Because some of it has been kidding. What? I've not even... <laughs> You put it too quickly. Be the change you want to see in the world. No, my friend. He actually got it. He actually got it from this. Man in mirror was going for it. You see? Be the change. So this is what I'm trying to see. I love you. Well done. Let's give ourselves a round of applause. Thank you for not falling my hand. Thank you. Now, there's only one small issue in this whole thing. It's just that you missed everything. Yes, you are all uludus. You are, I mean... Here's what you don't know. None of those quotes were originally uttered in that form by any of those people. They're what we call misattributed quotes. You just say it one day, somebody came up and I said, this person said it. Hey, it sounds like kind of thing this person will say. And we keep repeating it over and over. And you know what they say? A lie that is repeated over and over again ultimately becomes what? Right now, none of those guys want to deny they said it. Right? Knowing, look at, look, just look at. Right? But... You guys have monumentally fallen in my hand. You fell for misattributed quotes. But don't worry. There is forgiveness with me. <laughs> now, you see, misattributed quotes in this regard are not so bad because they say good things. But they can be dangerous when it's actually attributing to somebody something they have not actually uttered that is not right. Most of us don't like to be quoted in a bad way, isn't it? But equally dangerous... Um, equally dangerous with the misattributed quotes are the misapplication of a good quote. The misapplication of what? A good quote. Take the last one, for instance. We are the change, that be the change that you want to see. Good quote can be applied, you know, can be helpful in very, um, uh, a variety of ways. But when it's misapplied, it starts to assign to yourself or ourselves a certain level of unique importance, a certain level of arrogance, which makes us really literally believe that more, we are the change. Me, is, I am the, you know when we say leaders of tomorrow, all of those things. We are the change that people are waiting for. And it's nice to hear that in your adolescence. It's nice to hear that when you are an, in your early adulthood. But at some point, life comes. And life comes to challenge that narrative. And by the time life has hit you, those bars here and there, at some point, when you start saying, I am not truly that change, it leads you to a place of despair. You see, Elijah was guilty of misapplying Gandhi. And when things didn't happen the way he thought to happen, he was now in a place of despair. But the good thing here is this. God comes to correct Elijah. God comes to put Elijah in check, to say, Elijah, you are not that important. 
And when we think about it, you think, what God has? No, actually, that was a good a thing of grace. And I pray that the Lord will tell some people here that you are not that important. Amen. But you see, God's ultimate purpose is not just correction. He corrects for a larger purpose. God comes to put Elijah in check to show him that, look, Elijah, you are not needed. But when you understand that you are not needed, you can be useful. And I pray that as God delivers us also from a certain kind of mindset, you will then be able to see and come to the estate where that place where only God, um, God can actually begin to use you. And I pray that at the end of this message, we will get the encouragement, we will get the rebuke that is necessary, but also we will get the encouragement that God can truly use us to bring about the change that we are seeing. We are not the solution. We are not the change that we see. God is that change. But when we see that God is that change, then God can use us so mightily. Amen? Amen. Well, if we are going to do that, then let's ask God to help us already in this message. Father, Lord, we come to you. We come to you as empty vessels. We come to you as weak vessels. But we know, oh Lord God, that when we are empty and we come to you with that emptiness, you will fill us up. Lord, we know, oh God, that when we are weak and we come to you, as Paul said, that I will boast in my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Father, let there be, oh God, a sending forth of your power, oh God, this morning. And help us, oh God, to not only receive your rebuke, but to also receive your encouragement, we pray. Amen. So we've titled this message, We Are Not the Change We Seek. And I'm putting three points here that a certain person called Dami Adirami will be really proud of. Three points. We are not needed, but we can be useful. And here's why. Dami. All right, not bad, Abby. We are not needed. First point. You didn't get it. Don't worry. We are not needed, first point. Second point, but we can be useful. Third point, and here's why. All right, so let's start. We are not needed. Now, if you've not caught up with Elijah's story up until now, we find a prophet who was on fire for God, literally. Right? He came, he came, he addressed the king in a land that was very sinful, brought judgment. And after he brought the judgment, he ran away. He went to go and stay in the brook, beside the brook and a ravine, and God provided for him supernaturally with ravines. Eventually, that one dried up. So God sent him to a widow's house. Eventually, he was a supernatural provision came from there. And Eventually, when the three and a half years were running out, he was now about to bring rain. But before he did that, he slaughtered all the false prophets. He seen the mighty acts of God. And so he was expecting a revival. And then the revival didn't happen. Actually, what happened was the revival of Jezebel's heart to want to really destroy him. So he ran away. He left Mount Carmel and then the capital of Jezreel. He ran to a wilderness because he was in despair. And then eventually he got into a cave. And eventually, God brings him to Mount Horeb. And that's where he is. And at Mount Horeb, you see in verses uh, 9 and verse 13, God asks him the same question two times. What are you doing here, Elijah? What are you doing here, Elijah? God had answered twice. Elijah answered twice, too. What did he say? He said, ah, <laughs> what am I doing here? <laughs> I have been very zealous for Yahweh, God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant. All of them. Turn down your altars. Put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left. And now they are trying to kill me too. Same answer to both questions. Now when you examine that question, question, and that response, the answer, was Elijah right or wrong? 
Now, depending on who you read, some people say Elijah was wrong. Some people say Elijah was right. But how many of us believe that it's possible to be right and wrong at the same time? You know, there was, um, in, in my younger years, right? I mean, I say younger years, just subtract a number of years. That's what I mean. I'm not trying to say, you know, some people say when I was young. Yeah. Right? They say, some people say when I, was, when I was young. So, but in my younger years, I used to, uh, you know, I, I never really liked, like, absolutely large parties, apart from one base. I never really liked raves and, you know, I didn't like that. What I liked was what you call get-togethers, right? Small get-togethers were like 20 to 30 in a house, you know. And I saw that I had a unique calling that God had called me to bring life into the, into the get-together. I may not bring food, I may not bring it, but I just brought life. So I'll go to my friend's place, you know, just chat around, you know, just try and get people vibing. I was the chief vibe officer at that time. CVO. Yeah, I have all these titles, you know. So... I remember one of these, my friend's place. So, you know, the thing wasn't, it wasn't going. So I, I started talking, started blah, blah, blah. And next thing, she just turns to me and just says, must you always be the center of attention? <laughs> so I was now thinking about it. Huh. Is she right or is she wrong? And the first thing that came to my mind is, ah, no vex, so, no, now you're good, I'll be defined. You know, <laughs> let me be honest, the thing wasn't vibing. It, the party did not have any life. Even everything was dead. The chicken was dead. The meat was dead. And the party was dead. So I was just trying to help. I was right with that. But I was wrong in my heart that I actually had to be the one who always brought life. See, it's possible to be right with your observation and be wrong in your heart. Elijah was right in his observation. It is true that they had brought down the altars of God. It is true that there was idolatry. It is true that they have violated the covenant. It is even true that he was the only prophet that was publicly speaking about it at the time. It is all true. But he was absolutely wrong by feeling that God needed him in a way that he didn't need anybody else. He was absolutely wrong to think that he was so unique that God's mission was going to fail without him. It's possible to be right and wrong at the same time. Elijah had this cardinal Saying in his life that he thought that he was so needed, he thought that he was so indispensable. And many times we think that a particular person, a particular man of God, a woman of God, or maybe even you yourself, we are so indispens indispensable. Let me tell you something. The cemetery is full of graves of people that we thought were indispensable. The work of God has continued to move on. It is possible to be right and wrong at the same time. You observe certain things, but your heart isn't right. And here's what happens. When your heart is not right, all of a sudden, even the things that you start to observe, they start becoming blurry. Because God then told Elijah, well, no, wait, I still have 7,000 people that have not bowed. So he could not observe everything. He was limited in his observation because his heart was not right. Are we getting the point? We are not needed. Turn to your neighbor and say, we are not needed. It's just true. Earlier you wake up to that, the better. In fact, how many of you feel liberated that you are not needed? <laughs> now, this thing brings about certain kinds of dangers, but I want to apply it more collectively, not individually today. I want to apply it more collectively. If we are not careful, you see, the set, that sense of self-importance, that sense of self-righteousness, that sense of arrogance that Elijah had, 
when you apply it to a group of people, when you apply it to a church, it normally has one bastard child. Other bastard child, but this one is like firstborn. You know what it's called? It's called tribalism. Yes, what's tribalism? Well, let's start with what is a tribe. A tribe is a group of people who have common a shared interest, shared history, or shared, a shared identity. And then they also have an effective way of communicating with themselves with that shared interest, identity, and history. So, for instance, we have ethnic tribes, right? The Igbo tribe have a shared, like, shared land, the southeast of Nigeria, shared history from where they are uh, coming from, right? But also they have a shared, an effective way, the Igbo language, of communicating with themselves and also Igbo proverbs and things like that. So we think about ethnic tribes. We can think about ideological tribes, right? Let's say you're a Marxist, right? Many of you will have read Karl Marx's book or you'll have read um, uh, Mao Zedong's uh, red book. You know, things like that. They're shared histories, shared texts, and then they have ways, whether through conferences, whether through nomenclatures in those books, where they are able to speak to themselves, all right? That's a tribe. And there's nothing wrong with having tribes. In fact, in Christianity, we have tribes. We can't do without it, especially when we have differences of opinion in certain things, okay? But what is tribalism? Tribalism is when you then elevate that sense of identity to, uh, that sense of uh, identity and that sense of affiliation with the tribe to being your highest and most fundamental identity. Have I lost you? It is an idolatrous view of your tribe that then leads toward tribalism. When we have tribalism, as we often have in the church of Christ, it leads to devastating consequences. And one of them is this, misaligned priorities. Misaligned priorities. We choose certain things over certain things that is not right. Let me give you three of them. One, minors over majors. Minors over majors. Two, us over them. Us over them. Three, competition over mission. Competition over mission. Did we get them? First one is what? Second one is what? And the third one is what? So let's look at each of them. Minors over majors. When God questioned Elijah, two times, you know when they ask you, Fage, what are you doing here? Fage, what are you doing here? You know that all of a sudden, this thing is a really important thing. God was the one that brought Elijah to that place. It's not like God didn't know why. You understand? And besides, God knows everything. He's the one that brought him. He was asking Elijah to know whether Elijah, to, for him to now say, oh God, why did you bring me here? Elijah was busy answering something else about, this is why I'm feeling like this. It's not that that didn't matter. It was just that it was a secondary issue. There was a major issue. Elijah was focusing on the minor issue, not the major one. Are you following? It is very possible when we have tribalism within the Christian, within Christian kingdom, right? And remember, I said that we cannot but have tribes. But when we have tribalism, what happens is that we start to major in the minors and we minor in the majors. Certain teachings and certain doctrines become more important. The ones that divide us become more important than the ones that unify us. You see, I remember uh, early on in Christian ministry and all that. If you met me, right? I, 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 you know, imagine somebody that is learning to swim 
And he said, you want to learn how to swim, Abi? He said, just, when you want somebody to learn how to swim, what do you do? You start with the shallow end. Me, I didn't start ministry like that. I went in the deep end. My favorite book of the Bible, you know what? Book of Revelation. That's where I started. I used to double into Daniel, but it's not like the one you people were looking at. All those Daniel, Dan, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Everybody stops at Daniel 6. I started at Daniel 7, where you see the ancient of days, the beasts coming out from this. I love the beasts. You understand? That I was... All these people that you're saying prophet, prophetic, prophet, they don't know anything. I laugh today. Everybody's doing prophet. We were deep into it. I like the book of Matthew, but just Matthew 24. The end of days. When, you, when shall the end of these things happen? I remember one of my friends, I knew that Jesus, I, I actually had, you know, had, um, made the, done the mapping, everything. I knew when Jesus was coming, sort of, in the range. <laughs> so there was this friend of mine, I'll never forget. We were going home one day, and I just said, man, you know, I just gave in, I was red, I was on fire, so I just told him, I said, ah, guy, <laughs> Jesus is coming, you know, very soon. You don't know? He said, how do you know? I said, ah, let's open Matthew 24. I showed him. I said, uh, uh, they said earthquakes. I said, tsunami, tsunami, tsunami. <laughs> he said, what? Afghanistan, Iran, Iraq. I pointed everything. He said, the end. So I said, so are you going to give your life? The guy said, I think I have to think about it. Is it that you did here? I thought I locked the door. <laughs> you will give your life today. <laughs> I tried to force this guy into the kingdom. It didn't work. Eventually, I allowed him to go into utter darkness. I just... <laughs> I did not know how to preach the gospel, essentially. One of my cousins just came one day and just said, all oh, these things are saying, but is it not... This is, I, I, this is about the gospel of grace. I said, well, what, what's that? I said, what's that? Not because... Not because I felt it was untrue, but I actually didn't know how to preach salvation. And yet I was swimming in the book of Revelation. You know why? Because that is what gave my tribe its distinct identity. I was majoring in the minors and minoring in the majors. And so some of us, we know everything about the use of the gift of tongues. It's not just that it's used to edify the body of Christ, the interpretation, who even needs that one. It's about charging your spirit. It's about being able to take territories. It's about, it's about disinfecting the spiritual atmosphere. We start getting all of these things. We are so fascinated, we can answer all those questions. Or maybe you have somebody that says, ah, Reformed theology, do you know anything about the Westminster Confession of Faith? Do you know about the Heidelberg Catechism? Do you know about predestination? Do you know about prelapsarianism, supralapsarianism, immutability? We come with all of these things. I am not saying that these things are not important. I am saying don't major in the minors. Because what tribalism does is that it allows us to glory in the things that we know that other people do not know. It enables us to glory in what divides us from other people rather than what unifies us. And when that is then in place, the second one comes. What is that? Us versus them. Elijah, <laughs> Elijah, he's a man of like passion. Elijah said, God, there is no other prophet left. I'm the one left. In the previous chapter, in chapter 18, verse 13, he met a guy called Obadiah. If you're not listening to that message that Toki preached, wonderful message, go and listen to it. He met a guy, Obadiah. He told Obadiah, go and tell Ahab I'm coming. Obadiah said, ah, Ahab will kill me. He said, have you not heard what I did for the Lord, for Yahweh? I hid 100 of his prophets. Elijah heard that he had forgotten. I am the only one. As I said, what happens is it starts to cloud our image. And so we start to think it is me versus them. Within the same kingdom, we emphasize the us 
over the vein. That's how Jesus was with his disciples. The movement was growing. You know, people are starting to hear about him. Some people are starting to believe in him. But Jesus had his posse, right? The 12 guys and a few people are there. So one day, John was passing by somewhere. And you know, Jesus used to deliver people from demons. Hands up if you think it's a bad thing to deliver people from demons. Okay, good. We all universally think that it's good to deliver people from demons. Abby? Abby? There's only one instance that is not good. To deliver people from demons in Jesus' name. There's only one instance. John tells us. So John is passing by somewhere, and he sees some people are trying to deliver um, demons in Jesus' name, right? Luke chapter 9, verse uh, 49. He said, Master, so we saw some driving out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him. Stop that. Who dare you to be delivered? This is wrong. Now, obviously, he's going to give us a reason that is better, that, that supersedes, that, that we should keep that person demonly possessed. What is the reason? Because he's not one of who? Us. Ah! <laughs> us. Master, can you imagine? That should be the guy is being delivered, eh, but he's not one of us. A mentor of mine once told me a story. He was hearing some people preach. He, he, went, he went to, he was my, this mentor work, part of a movement. So, he went to one Christian meeting and somebody was preaching. And so he was enjoying the message and all of that. Then there was another person that was part of that movement that was in that meeting and he saw him. He saw him. He said, ah, this guy is really getting this thing. So he called him out. He said, please, I want to see you. I want to see you. So he got out. Ah, and something put in. I said, hey, this guy that is preaching, he said, what do you think about the message? He said, he said, eh, the message is good, bro. I didn't really bless him. The guy said, eh. He then said, but is he part of our way? <laughs> so what, do you, what do you mean? He said, no, the guy that is preaching, is he part of our way? It didn't matter that the guy was being blessed. How can you be blessed by somebody that is not part of our way? There are some of us. There are some of us. Let's not lie. Right? That's not like if somebody, if you go to a place and say, ah, this man is coming from redeemed Christian Church of God, he's about to preach to us. That's when you just close your mind. <laughs> if you hear somebody is from Dunamis, those yeah, yeah people, right? Just fighting power, power you we close our minds because we are violating the cardinal rule of tribalism. What is the cardinal rule of tribalism? I'm glad you asked. Let me take you to the Godfather. The Godfather. It's a film not too, it's from years back, just a few years ago. Yes. Yeah, a few years. All right. The Godfather, greatest uh, mafia film ever done. At this point, there used to be a man that was head of the family, but he was in semi-retirement. And so a new guy, Michael Colioni, is taking over. Now, he's talking to, the clip we show you, he just finished talking with a business guy, a business guy in Las Vegas. He's not happy with him. And why is he not happy with him? Because that one decided to rough his brother up. His brother was a useless guy. He was working for this Las Vegas businessman. That's what the brother was doing. But the brother was now messing up, sleeping around. He wasn't doing the work. So that guy just tried to discipline a little bit. And like, you discipline my brother. Ah. He said, I want to, you're, you're selling your business. Just go and think about a price. How dare you talk to me that way? How dare you? So at some point, the brother himself is like, ah, no, it's not like that. Now he was saying you shouldn't. So at some point, the manager said, he got up, he said, you will sell this business to me, go and think about the price. And so that businessman is leaving. And so you are now left with Michael Colioni or Mike, and then his brother, 
now talks to him. And then after he says something to him, which you'll see, he gives him the cardinal rule of tribalism. Watch. Mike, you don't come to Las Vegas and talk to a man like Mo Green like that. Fredo, you're my older brother, and I love you. But don't ever take sides with anyone against the family again. Don't ever take sides what? Against the family. Don't take sides with anybody against what? The family. You know some people now, that's how. Ijebu people are always stingy, that's it. You have never met a, it's not about, uh, you've never met a generous Ijebu person. And there are many generous Ijebu people I know. You see, it's a part of the problem. The issue is never about what is right or wrong individually. The issue is not about whether what is true or what isn't. The issue is truth and morality is based on relationality. It is them, and therefore they are always wrong, and us, therefore we are always right. Tribalism enables or stops you from ever seeing anything good with other people that are not like you, and it stops you from ever seeing what is wrong with your own tribe. Do you understand? It is terrible. There was a guy who Jesus told the parable about in Luke chapter 18. And he even tells you why he's telling this parable. He's saying it is because of those who are self-righteous who look down on others. And so he tells about two people who go into the temple. One is a Pharisee. The other one is a tax collector. When the Pharisee is thanking God, he's not an atheist. He's thanking God about what God has done for him. He said, listen to what he said. He says, I thank you, God. That I am not like, I am not like what? Them. The cardinal rule of tribalism. They are always bad. So all these, all these bank robbers, all these uh, 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 evildoers, all these adulterers. And who? Even these. Ah. God, thank you that me, I believe in the power of the Holy Spirit. Oh. Not like all those ones who say the Holy Spirit is not... Uh, is not doing work here. God, thank you that I believe that it is you that saves. It's not human beings that save you because God is sovereign. Thank you I'm not like all those Armenian Christians. Thank you I'm not like... Do, do, are you hearing? It creates an us versus them mentality within the same kingdom. It makes you start feeling like your church is the hope of what, the ones that God has been looking forward to. Let me tell you something, and let me tell you this very, very clearly. Listen, for many of you who have come to City Church, I thank God that you are here. I hope that you hear a unique message that brought you here, that made, makes you want to keep, uh, stay here, committed to this church, and committed to our vision and everything. But let me tell you, we are not the only ones left. We are not the only ones left. We are not the hope of Lagos. We are just trying to be part of the hope of Lagos' work. That's Jesus' work. Do you understand that? If anybody ever gives you that vibe, that sense of vibe, know that those people do not speak for us and they do not represent us. God is doing his work in other places. We may be in places that we don't always agree with, but he's doing his work there. How can he, you, 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 do you want to be one church, one church to be the hope of a whole city? Can you deal with that kind of pressure? Our shoulders are not big enough. So thank God for the work that he's doing in other people's churches. They are not an us. It is us to get that parapet. And the same God that is at work, may God deliver us from this sin of tribalism. Amen. Because what it then leads to is another misalignment of priorities. It now leads to what? 
competition over what? Mission. Ah, this one is really bad. You see, when you have defined those people um, that they are not like you, you are now tribal. When God is doing something there, you can never celebrate their victories. The guy was delivering the demons from there. You, are, you couldn't see that one. All you were seeing is that he's not part of us. So you hear that the CAC did one crusade in one place. They said that 400 people were saved. 800 people were healed. So this is 800. Are we sure? <laughs> who saw it? Bring report, doctor report. They bring doctor report. Who told you that is an original doctor's report? Which hospital is there? You go and see the hospital. Are you sure it's not quacks? If you keep giving evidence to somebody that does not believe, you're just giving him more reason to keep justifying the belief that they have in themselves. Listen, guys, we may not, you see, we may not be, we may not agree. And I'm not trying to belittle the differences in with churches and our doctrines. In fact, those differences mean that sometimes we can't do church worship together. There are significant differences. I'm not trying to shy away from it. But don't look at those differences to now say that we are not on the same team because we are on the same team. It's like, look at the English Premier League, right? 20 clubs that are there. And these people, let's say Chelsea is playing uh, Manchester United. They are playing hard against themselves. Hard against themselves, right? But let me tell you something. In Manchester United, you have Marcus Rashford. On Chelsea, you have Mason Mount, right? When it is time for European Nations League, when it's time for World Cup, guess what happens? Mason Mount and Marcus Rashford are on the same country. They are on the same team. We may be in different clubs here in the kingdom of God, but we are in the same country. We represent the same nation. So we may have differences. We may be Chelsea and whatever. We may be Chelsea and Manchester United are playing hard against themselves. But when the, Brit, uh, the, 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 the anthem of England is being played, you will see them holding their hands there. May you be the kind of Christian that is always celebrating what God is doing in that place that you can never attend. We are not in competition against each other. We are on the same mission. Some of us are more aligned, which means we may be able to do certain things together. But some of us are so not aligned, which means that all you can maybe do is to pray for them. And maybe some of us are so far aligned that you say, ah, this man seems to be leading them astray. Pray for the people that are there. But we are in the same country. Not. Even though we are not in the same club. Because the problem with this thing is that it brings about redefinitions. We redefine who the enemy is. We redefine what the message is. We redefine what the mission is. You see, our message is the gospel. Our enemy is Satan. Our mission is to see the lost that are saved. But when you become so tribal, you know what happens? And I've, I have drank these waters. I was more passionate. The mission becomes this. Converting other Christians into your own kind of Christianity. You forget totally about the loss. It's about, but this person is not a Calvinist. But this person is not continuationist. But this person is not Anglican. This person, you, you focus more on those things than actually somebody who is being saved. And so that when that Anglican is doing what God's work, what eventually happens, you start complaining. There are certain people, I'm going to call this out, there are certain people that say, we shouldn't be singing songs that... You know, this church that is famous for singing church, some churches that are famous for singing churches. He said, we shouldn't sing it. You know why we shouldn't sing it? And when I heard this one, I said, hey, this is trouble. Because me, I dabbled into it a little bit. I said, this is trouble. We should have nothing to do with it. He said, ah, 
We shouldn't sing it. So I say, but, but a lot of those songs are theologically correct. He said, yes, it may be theologically correct, but if you sing them, then they now get royalties paid to them. And when the royalties are paid to them, it builds the platform for them to still keep spreading their false teaching. Can you imagine? These same people will buy coffee or they will watch Disney. And they will, all of these things that are against the agenda of God, they have no problem paying their subscription there. They have no problem actually, you know, patronizing these people. But when it comes to the people that are in the kingdom, all of a sudden, now we are in competition with them. May God deliver us from that kind of thing. The motivation to do that does not come from the Lord. Where do you think it comes from? It comes from the real enemy who has no better strategy than to make us focus on fighting ourselves. But Jesus said in John chapter 17, verse 21, let them be one, O God. I do not pray just for them. I pray for those who believe like them through their message. What is the grand unifier? The message, the gospel is the grand unifier. Brings us back together. Who is our enemy? It is Satan who has been defeated. What is our mission to go and save the lost? That is why you, some of you know that we have a, a, a church planting academy where we train people from any, any pastor from anywhere. Last, this new said, the one guy said he's Pente, apostolic Pentecostal. Some others said that they were Baptist. Some others said that they were Reformed. Some others said they're unaffiliated. It's okay. All of us, let's come together because the gospel of Jesus Christ is going to bring us together. When we are so divided, Jesus said, so that the world may know that you have sent me. When the church is so divided, fighting against each other, you know what that does? It confuses unbelievers. And let them be one. Just as you and I are one, so that the world may know that you have sent me. Be careful how when you are scrolling, maybe you are some of you, you spend so much time looking at what Suleiman said. Apostle Suleiman said, look at what uh, Bishop Redepo said. Look, I just spent time just saying, uh, I'm watching this thing in tears. You have never shed one tear. <laughs> just praying for their souls. No. There's a certain, there's certain, there's certain diabolical joy that you have just seeing them spew out messages you don't like. What kind of thing is that? Let me tell you, it is the enemy that is doing this. May God deliver us from tribalism. Now, quickly to the second one. But we can be useful. You see, Elijah, as we said, made the mistake of thinking he was absolutely indispensable. Elijah was more zealous. He said, I'm zealous for you. Actually, Elijah was more zealous for his ministry than the God that called him into that ministry. But God showed him that there is true. There is a, an indispensable personality that is involved in this thing. But guess what, Elijah? It's not you. Who is it? Let me show you. You see, Elijah, God then told Elijah, go and anoint certain people. He said, go and anoint Hazel. Go and anoint uh, King of Aram. Go and anoint who? Jehu, king of Israel, that's the, the northern kingdom. There are two kingdoms, Israel and Judah. And then go and anoint um, Elisha, who is going to succeed you. Why? Notice what he says after. He says, Jehu will kill anyone who escapes the sword of Hazael. And Elisha will do the same for Jehu. What was he sending to do? Well, it was fully explained if you read one, uh, this 1 Kings 21 verse 21, right? Where basically he was wiping out the uh, lineage of Ahab. Now, was this thing fulfilled? Oh, you bet it was. Not in one kings, but in two kings. Now, 
just quickly for you to understand, we are trying to wipe out the whole of Ahab's family. Ahab, my Jezebel, Jezebel gave birth to Joram. So after Ahab had died, Joram was now the new king of Israel, but he's still in Ahab's house. And then Jezebel had a daughter, Ataliah, who had a son called Ahaziah, who became the king of Judah. So Ahaziah is nephew to Joram. And at one point, they were now going to go and battle against Hazael, who is now the king of Aram. Do you understand? So both Joram and Ahaziah are both within Ahab's lineage. Okay? And God had told Elijah that the whole of Ahab's house is going to be destroyed. So we have Ahaziah, we have uh, Ahab, uh, we have Ahaziah, we have Joram, we have Jezebel, and we have anybody in, uh, in, in um, uh, Ahab's household. So what do we see? 2 Kings 28. Isaiah went to Joram, blah, blah, blah. They went to fight Hazael, the king of Aram, uh, Aram in um, at Ramoth Gilead. The Arameans did what? Now, they killed a lot of Israelites, but they wounded Joram. Is Joram dead? So he escaped the sword of who? So what's going to happen to him? All right, let's see 9 verse 24. Then Jehu drew his bow and shot Joram between the shoulders. The arrow pierced his heart and he slumped down in his chariot, dead. Who is next? Isaiah, you're not running away. Next one, 27. When Isaiah, king of Judah, saw what had happened, he fled. Jehu chased him, shouting, kill him too. They wounded him in his chariot, but he escaped to Megiddo. And what happened? Died there. Who is next? Jezebel. Let's go. Verse 30, then Jehu went to Jezreel. When Jezebel heard about it, she put on eye makeup, arranged her hair, and, and some of you are still putting on makeup. All right. And I read, just let's focus. Arranged hair, putting on your wigs and all of those things. And looked out of a window. Look, God is doing something new in this house. All right, throw her down, Jehu said. So they threw her down, and some of her blood splattered the wall. Joram dead. Ahab dead. Isaiah, Isaiah dead. Jezebel dead. Who else is left? Now, at 10 verse 17, when Jehu came to Samaria, he killed all who were left there of Ahab's family. He destroyed them according to the word of the Lord spoken to Elijah. Guess what? All of this thing was fulfilled. Guess who was not around? Elijah. God doesn't need you. Who was orchestrating all these things? Yes. He, see, there is only one indispensable one, and it is none of us. God will continue to do his work without us or not. Do you understand? In fact, if you really want to be a child of God, you say, God, I want to invest myself into something that would, that would have a legacy beyond my life. Elijah was not needed. Because there's only one indispensable one. And it was the one who spoke the word to Elijah. But who anointed them? Who anointed them? He wasn't needed, but he was useful. Listen, God is the kind of God where he shows you, he rebukes you on the one hand, but he doesn't rebuke you to condemn you. He rebukes you so that he can properly use you. Listen, guys, even though we may not be worthy, we don't have to be worthless. Even though we are not necessary or essential, we don't have to be unimportant. Even though we are not dispensable, we do not have to be useless. God can use us. In fact, God will use us in the name of Jesus. You see, God takes us through this so that he can humble us. And when we are in that humble state, then he can use us. That's why in James chapter 4 verse 6, he says this. He says, God gives more grace to the humble and then he opposes what? The proud. May, you, may your pride not make you an object for God's opposition. 
Imagine trying to stand before God and trying to oppose the work of God. God says, if you are arrogant, I will oppose you. But there is a way you can behave that, look, eh, it's not just that my grace will be at work in you. I'll give you grace. Then after that grace, you know what will happen? I'll give you more grace. He didn't say God will give grace. He said God will give what? More grace. The more you are humble, the more God can use you. He does not humiliate us. He humbles us. There are two different things. If you continue to be proud, he will, hum he will humiliate you. But for those that will allow themselves to be hum humbled by God, he will give you more grace. May the Lord give us more grace. As we open ourselves to see that he is the only indispensable one, may he then find us to be useful in his hands. So how is he going to humble us? Well, he does two things with Elijah. It's about going out. He told Elijah, go out and stand. And he said, go back the same way you came. Go out and stand. Look at the first one. He says, go out and stand in verse 11. How is he going to go out and stand and do what? On the mountain in the presence of the Lord. On the mountain in the presence of the Lord. Why is that important? He's standing in the presence of the Lord. Can I be honest with you? A lack of contemplating God in who, in his essence and his glory. A lack of contemplating God in his essence and his glory. Does, it makes us elevate ourselves and other human beings and it makes us diminish who God is. You know, the songwriter said, I have made you too small in my eyes. It is not that God has become smaller. He has become smaller in our own world, eyes because we have not been contemplating. Quite frankly, we treat God as our mate. We've been hearing about God all the time. All the, and so we've heard a lot of songs about Jesus is my best friend. Jesus, God is my friend. I am a friend of God. He calls me friend. All of those things. And so now we don't see him as that great and majestic God. And so we start treating him like our mate. Simon invited Jesus to his house, threw a party for him. Jesus is a very good, he's a, he's, a, he's, a, he's a fantastic man. So what does he do? When Jesus comes in, ah, Jesus sit down there, he sat down next to Jesus. All right, let's just talk about politics. Let's talk about what's going on. And then one woman came in. The woman now broke a, an alabaster back, a, a, a box, used her hair to wipe Jesus' feet. And then Simon said, if this guy was a true prophet, he would know. Maybe he was an important person you invited. But he's also saying that he's, what? If he's a true prophet, he will know what kind of woman this is. You know why? Because he and Jesus had become made. They were sitting down, they were reclining together. Familiarity breeds contempt. There is a way that we have domesticated God. Sometimes the way, quite frankly, the way we sin, the way we rationalize things and all of that, it is because we have diminished the glory of God in our own eyes. Sometimes maybe you have... You know, because you've not contemplated his glory, you do a few things, you pray for one person, the person got healed, you got double promotion this year. It's <laughs> me to tell, I'm not too bad though. I'm not where God is, but God, me too, I don't move up small. You don't say it with your mouth, but that is how we are thinking. We have lost a sense of the glory of God. So God told Elijah, if you want to be humble, go and stand before my presence so you can see me. Because something happens when we truly see God for who he is. Isaiah was the most righteous man in his own day. Most people have said, that is the kind of person I want to be. Isaiah, in the year that King Uzziah died, he said what? He saw a vision. He saw the Lord. It's not that he had not been encountering God before, but there was a way he saw God. He said, I saw the Lord. He was high and he was lifted up on his throne. And when he saw God, what was his response? 
What was his response in verse 5? He says, Woe is me. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips. The most righteous man is there. I am a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. Why? Because of what he saw. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. When you say you are seeing God, what do you see? I'll tell you whether you are seeing the right thing. What then do you say about yourself? I am ruined. May God help us to be enchanted with him once again. This thing about the majesty of God is really taken away. Even the songs we sing many times, we just want to a God that we are so relatable with. And you have to ask yourself, why is this thing happening? That's the second thing. But I do want to ask, do you, have, are you glancing at God and then you leave? Are you contemplating? Are you patiently yearning and searching for this sense of majesty of God? Or are you just always thinking about the next problem you have, the person you have not married, the decisions you have to take, all of those things? Do you rush everything when it comes to God? Because the second thing here, when he says, says, go back the way you came in verse, F, F, verse 15, Go back the way you came. Elijah came in one way, but he says, go back that same way you came. Count those steps that you came. Look at that road that you came. In other words, he's saying, how did you get here? I want you to reflect on how did you get here. How did you get to the point where you are no longer humble and you don't contemplate God's glory again? How did you get there? Because I can tell you it did not happen by accident. Let me give you one example. I'm not calling anybody out because sometimes I've been guilty of this myself. Not that I'm not calling. Of course, I'm calling, I'm calling people out. I'm calling myself out. Let me ask you, it's a tragedy, I think, that many of us sometimes in the place of worship, I'm not trying to say any particular worship style or something, but when last in the place of worship, collective worship, did you see the majesty of God? Why you first and foremost just, oh, now, why did they change this thing? Why is all this song, this jumpy song? Looking at the person around you, say, this one that keeps hitting me, and you are missing, you are missing an opportunity to contemplate the greatness of God. Or you are just passing every line. I said, that one didn't rhyme. That one didn't rhyme with that one. Why all these simplistic songs? We are missing out. Or let me even go further. Do you know one reason why sometimes in the churches in Nigeria, and even around the world, not just Nigeria, do you know why there is a sort of undue reverence and attachment to pastors and preachers? Do you know why? Should I tell you why? Because people's idea of church is I'm coming to come and listen to the preacher and I'm going. How can I tell you that? You show up after we are finished singing. Even for those who are watching, when we track the stats, you know when our peak viewing is during what? Sermon. In fact, you start seeing the rise as the sermon time is approaching. Why? Because we're just, ah, the thing I just need is my word for the week so that I can go. So what happens is the main star of the show is the Elijah. It is not the God of Elijah. Because if the God of Elijah was on the show, you see, our worship service has now become a teaching center. And so obviously it's the teacher that is the person that we are looking forward to. But if it is a worship service, it is not just about what we are teaching. It is before we, God speaks to us, we have contemplated his glory. The first way we start our other service is what? Through songs of adoration. Where you can then say, my eyes have seen the king. Woe is me. So ask yourself, how did I get there? And there are many other things that we should look at. Go back the way you came. 
Maybe you don't prepare spiritually well when you are coming for service. That is the time that your husband and wife, both of you start arguing about something. About the, you didn't drive in this way. You didn't. Okay, once, you are, once it is just, oh yeah, let's keep quiet. Think about the night before. Or if throughout the week, 90% of the songs you've been listening to are not Christian songs. I'm not saying you should not listen to non-Christian songs. I'm saying if 90% of the songs are not songs that elevate you to God, then all of a sudden you think you just drop in and see the presence of God when you are not singing in church. Come on, guys. Go back the way you came. Because what is at stake here is that we are not going to be humble before the presence of God. And if we are not humble in the presence of God, then we cannot be useful. But he didn't just say, go back the way you came. He said, go back the way you came, then go to the desert of Damascus. So you came through this way, but now I want to take you somewhere you have not been before. So after you've reflected, you have to go somewhere you have not been before. In other words, after you reflected on how you got here, you now have to think and then do the things that is going to take you away from there. So what steps are you going to take? You know, when you read your Bible and you just see, and God, God uh, parted the Red Sea, because God parted the Red Sea. When last did you see, did you hear, that Babbage was parted and people walked through it? Shouldn't you just drop there and say, my God, what a God. And start. So how, how am I going to read the Bible in a way, maybe in the next one month, to recapture a sense of the awe of God? Maybe you will have to pause on the preachers you listen to sometimes that give you practical steps for a while. Maybe you're going to say, for the next two weeks, I am going to listen to messages that only talk about the greatness of God. What are you going to do when you get to the desert of Damascus? What new, uh, 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 what do you call it, a devotional are you going to use? In, forget reading the Bible in one year. Get one that just in one week shows you the greatness of God. Do something different. Because God is saying this. You should not aim for indispensability. You should aim for humble usability. It is only when we are humble before the presence of God that he can then use us. You see, Isaiah eventually said, when he said all of this in the Amorim, God then said, look, I'm going to take a call. He put it on Isaiah's lips. He said, your sins are atoned for. And then God said, whom shall I send? Isaiah did not say, I am ruined though. You can't use me. I'm a sinful man. Because you have saved me. He then said, here I am, Lord, what? Send me. God is not trying to humiliate us. He is trying to humble us so that he can send us. And so how are you going to see yourself humbled? Peter says that humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. And do you know what he will do? He will lift you up. Guys, God is for us. And that's why sometimes he has to be against what is in us. So that he can use us well. Are we together? And then finally, so we've said, we are not needed, but we can be useful. And here is why. Third point. Because somebody is listening to this and now said, you see, this is partly why I left church for a while. I'm still a Christian. But I left church because now you've gone back to that. God is holy. God is holy. God is majestic. Everything. Listen. It's too simplistic a view. Is that all I'm going to tell me about God? And that God is not even relatable to the complexities of my situation. If that is what is needed to humble me and then be used, I can't relate to it. I'd rather not be used. In fact, I have come with my own. This glorious God that I talk about, she is the God that judges. Okay. I'm tired of a judge always at the back of my, always at the back of my shoulder that's going to judge me. I have taken my own. I'm going to be judged. All right, fine. I'm going to be judged, but I'm going to enjoy my life here. I can't relate to this God. I don't want to be used by this God. 
which I want to say, I totally agree with you, actually. You're not wrong. This is a very simplistic view of God. Presenting God alone in this way. And for those of us who like to be the ones that are bringing the church back to seeing the holiness of God, be careful. They are not presenting just one view of God. Because when you get the full picture of God, the God that is able, that really truly uses us, you know what we see? An unusual revelation. An unusual revelation. Elijah, God said, come and stand before my presence. I'm going to pass before you. And you see, and so what are we looking for? <laughs> of course we know what we're looking for. He is the majestic God. So he's going to come in a wind that blasts the rocks. A wind that takes everything in his way. A wind that is so mighty because our God is mighty. He wasn't there. He said, and you know, it's not yet complete. Yes. Right? There is a wind that is there. But he is the God that created the heavens and the earth. He is in control of the earth. He is the one that brings mountains. Uh, uh, shakes mountains. He is the one that brings earthquakes. So God is going to definitely come in the wind. But the wind was a precursor for the earthquake. He's coming in an earthquake. He wasn't there. And I say, and you know, but that group is called earth, wind, and fire. So God is going to actually come in the fire. Those two were just setting things up. And so he's going to come in fire. Because don't forget, he already came on fire in Mount Carmel. He still was not there. He disclosed himself not in the wind, not in the earthquake, not in the fire. For those who are always looking for God to come in dramatic ways. Do you know how he came? In a voice. A gentle whisper. See, a voice. A gentle whisper. He had come in a mighty way in Carmel, but God will not be boxed. I said God will not be boxed. He will not fit into our normal stereotype. Because on the one hand, you want to say, I've seen God in this way, but God says, no, for certain other things, I have to come in a different way. I am going to come what? In a voice. And you then say, what is a voice? What is a whisper? What is that going to achieve? I'll tell you what it will achieve. Nothing short of a revolution. If you don't believe me, believe Tracy Chapman. She said, don't you know? Starting a, 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 talking about a revolution, it starts what? In a whisper. In a whisper. So finally, the tables are turning. Talking about a word, a revolution. God brings a revolution even in a whisper. You say, but about Carmel, don't box him. Well, how can I, I don't understand. This is an unusual revelation. Exactly. It's not the first time, even in the Old Testament. In fact, at the same Mount Horeb, Moses encountered God. If you read chapter 24 of Exodus, verse 15 to 8, this one, he actually, there was lightning, there was thunder, there were clouds, there were fire, all of that. Yes. But when God says, now I'm going to proclaim my name, he says, I'm going to proclaim my name, Yahweh, Yahweh. And in verse 7, he then says, he is the one that what? He does not, go back, He go back, go back. He does not leave the guilty what? Unpunished. And like, exactly. The God that is always judging. The God that is always judging. I can't deal with this God, as what I said. I said, but you didn't read every other thing. Because God will not be boxed. It is always an unusual revelation. Go to 6, before we go to 7. You know what he says? And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, Yahweh, Yahweh, the Lord, the Lord, the compassion. Read it with me. The what? 
and slow, abounding faithfulness, maintaining love to a thousand, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin, and does not leave the guilty unpunished. You see, those three things don't work together, but they work together in our lives. We are people who want justice. We are protesting with answers. We don't like what the government is doing. We don't like sin in our nation. We don't like when people misabuse their wives. We don't like all of those things. We want them to be punished. And God says it's true. Sin should be punished. Psalm 130 verse 3. Do you like this? He says that if you should mark what iniquities, O God, who shall what? If God were to just punish the sin that you want him to punish, well, guess what? You will be first in line. And so if you have this simplistic God, then what happens? We are all judged. And for some people, they say, I have seen that God. I don't care. I do not revere him. I do not revere a kind of God that is just like that. But you know what? Some people will revere God not just by his judgment. They will revere God by his forgiveness. Because that is a God that can feed that complexity. And so that's why in verse 4 of chapter of 1 of Psalm 130, it then says, but with you there is what? Forgiveness, so that you can be cuddled, no, so that we can, with reverence, do what? Serve you. God, this God, he, he comes with an unusual revelation of himself because that is what we need. And it is in that unusual revelation he can humble us. Why? Because the full revelation of God, unusual, he came as a humble God, a servant, a man, humble to a criminal's cross. And it was there in that humbling of the criminal's cross that God was able to take all our sin, that God was able to take Elijah's sorrow, that God was able to take that sin of tribalism that is there, that God is saying, though you have arrogance that is pushing me away from it, that wants me to oppose you, there is a way I can use you. It is because I became humble and I became humble on the cross. And now you have the message of a humble God. If only I can find a couple of humble people that can go and read the lost. If only I can find a couple of people who are united. If only I can find a couple of people who are not divided, who do not think of themselves above others, I will start a revolution. have a message of a humble God. All God is looking for is a humble people that will say it's not that we are the only ones left but the one who never changes is always there. Whom shall I send? What is your response? Send me. Let's rise and pray.